coming up next on Contemplate. Now, the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul to the Romans and to us, saying, listen, what you have to do is not be Jewish or a man or live in Jerusalem or make sure you make it there for all the feasts or do any of these things. He's saying, look, the Lord has won the show. And everyone, anyone who wants to come to him can be saved. It's an important thing to know. No one's out. When God sent the Holy Spirit on what we call Pentecost, people thought those who were part of that experience were crazy, or at least drunk. Well, Peter took advantage of the situation and spoke some powerful truth that we'll begin to study today. Here's Pastor David Robinson with today's episode recorded live at Acts Church. This week, we're going back to Acts uh, chapter 2. As you recall, last time we had the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes in with the sound of rushing wind, with, with, with the vision, the sight of fire on, on people's heads, and then people started speaking in languages that they didn't know, but that all these people who had come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost from all these other places, they did know those languages. And so all these people, about 120 folks that were up there with the disciples praying, were baptized with the Holy Spirit, started speaking in other languages. And as you recall, at the end of the passage we did last time, a couple weeks ago, what we had was some people recognized immediately that this was a sign of God and wondered what it meant, and some other folks mocked them and said they're drunk. Okay, so that's where we left it. Now, I'm going to uh, tell you something before we start today. Um, as, as some of you know, I'm an attorney, was an attorney, don't practice much anymore. I'm really glad you guys don't gasp as much now when I say that. It <laughs> makes me feel a little bit better. Like, eventually, you're like, okay, I guess he's okay. No, uh, but as an attorney in a trial, what we are doing is we're building evidence for a closing argument. On TV, I know that what they really do on TV is they try to get the guy who's actually, in, you know, just there watching the trial to all of a sudden stand up and say, I did it. It was me. I'll just tell you, that never happens. Never no one ever comes up and just admits there's no Perry Mason moments in real trials, okay? Nor are you questioning a witness and it's this amazing back and forth and then they tell you you can't handle the truth. Nothing like that happens. Trials are generally relatively boring up until the time when the attorney puts together the information he has in a closing argument by taking all these facts that came during the trial that may not have seemed that significant at the time, but when you put them together in that closing argument, they make sense. And so you bring up a witness who says that they saw, uh, you know, the person buying a uh, uh, safe cracking kit. We got that witness up. So the, in your closing argument, you know, you heard testimony from so-and-so that, that they saw the defendant buying a safe cracking kit. The next one comes up, you heard so-and-so's testimony that they found so-and-so, the defendant's uh, fingerprints on the safe. And then finally, you heard from two witnesses who said they saw the defendant taking money out of the safe. Now I'm asking you, based on those things, 
to find the defendant guilty. That's, that's how it works. You gather that evidence, you put it together, and then you ask the jury or the judge or whoever is the what we call finder of fact to draw the same conclusion that you have. Okay, so that's how it works. Now, that may seem like, why, are you, why am I telling you this? Well, let me tell you. We are going to read a sermon by Peter. And Peter is basically giving a closing argument. He's going he's gonna to take evidence like in a trial, and he's going to present it to the men who were standing there listening, and he's going to try to prove who Jesus Christ is and what they ought to do as a result of it. So as, as we're going through this, I want you to keep that in your mind, that that's kind of what happens. That's, that's what's happening here. Peter is giving a closing argument. Okay? So let's start here with uh, verse 14. In chapter 2, and it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Here's the first thing I want you to notice that's happened here. Peter, all of a sudden, has the courage to stand in front of a group of thousands of people and boldly proclaim. He said, Hey, listen up. I'm about to preach. Now, you need to remember that Peter, just about 50 days ago or so, was afraid of a little girl who was trying to tie him together to Jesus, so much so that he denied Jesus, who he said he loved, three times. That's how frightened Peter was. And now here he is, just 50 days or so later, proclaiming boldly in front of everybody about Jesus. So we see this, and we have to wonder why. Let me tell you the two reasons why I believe that Peter goes from being a wuss to being a warrior. First, he saw the risen Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, fear would have been somewhat natural to have. Hey, I thought this guy was the man. Now he's dead. But he didn't stay dead. And Peter saw him risen again. So Peter knew that he did not have to fear death. The thing that he feared at the time when he was denying Christ was death. Hey, they're going to get me too. Now he knew there was nothing to fear in death, so he is bolder. The second reason is because he's just been baptized with the Holy Spirit and had the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do things that you normally in your own power couldn't have done because God uses the weak and makes us strong. And so that's what you see in Peter in this first verse where he stands up. This guy who was, who was kind of a wuss all of a sudden stands up like a man to proclaim the gospel. Let's look at verse 15. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. So remember, people had said this, these people were drunk, the people who were speaking in tongues. That's the context where we are. The third hour of the day, that's about 9 a.m. So Peter's basically saying, listen... These guys aren't drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. Now, it's about 9.40 now, and I'm wondering how many of you are drunk. I mean, I know it's tough to get through my sermons. Um, a little extra help. You know, but if someone was drunk in this room right now, we would think that was strange. People don't generally get drunk at 9 in the morning. Neither do they do so in large groups. Neither do they start speaking in foreign language when they do. But Peter's point is, listen, that's not what's going on here. That's not what's going on here. So verse 16 through verse 18, it says this. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Peter is quoting from the book of Joel, the prophet Joel. Remember, these were, as we heard before, these were devout men who were there. Devout men who had come to this feast. Only devout men would have traveled all the way to come to this feast because they were called to do so. So these guys knew the scripture. They knew it well enough to know that they needed to be in Jerusalem at Pentecost. They knew it well enough to know what Peter's talking about when he mentions Joel and this prophecy. So in the Old Testament, the way things worked with the Holy Spirit was God would put his spirit upon someone and they might prophesy. Or like Samson, he might put his spirit on someone and they might be really strong. He might put his spirit on someone and they might have uh, the, the ability to lead well like Moses. Whatever it happened to be. But the point was, is it was given out by God to individuals, to people, when he wanted to. But it was not all the time. This, what Joel is talking about, is when, when the Lord is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Not one thing at a time, but a baptism of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit filling people. And obviously, he's suggesting that because these folks are speaking in tongues, this is what has happened. The Holy Spirit is fulfilling this prophecy right now, today. That's what you're seeing. That's what he's saying. They're not drunk. Let me quote Joel to you so you can understand what's happening. Now, it says, all flesh, and let me just you know, as I read that passage, it says all flesh, it might make you think, well, he's pouring out his spirit on everyone, every person. But that's not what that means. That doesn't mean that every single person would have the spirit poured out on them or the people who he was preaching to would have had it too and there'd be no reason to preach to them. What it means is that there's no di differentiation. God is not saying, okay, just this person who I've chosen as a prophet or just Jewish people, just men, None of that. There's no gender. There's no birthright to it. Nothing like that. He's saying, hey, there, I will pour out my spirit on all those who believe, essentially. Now let's look at verse 19 and 20. It says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. So, in those verses I read you before, he's talking about Joel's prophecy, what's happening right now. This is what you're seeing right now. The verses I just read are what's going to happen in the future. They're what's going to happen in the future. They're basically at the end of the age. Now, the day of the Lord is a term that we see in Scripture a number of times, and different folks who have read Scripture <clears throat> have thought different things about what that means here in this passage. Okay? So... Some people say that the day of the Lord just refers to the period of time at the end of the age. And we use the word day like that sometimes, right? I could say, on this day, I do whatever, and that means the actual day, that the 24-hour period that we're in. But I could say, back in the day, I used to do so-and-so. Or in my day, we used to do whatever. And that refers to a period of time, right? So it's a possible interpretation. It's not the one that I agree with, but it's a possible interpretation. Some people have it. Another possible interpretation, some people actually think he's talking about that day, the day that they're, where he's talking, Pentecost. That doesn't make any sense to me for a couple of reasons. Uh, one reason is that the things that he's referring to, they didn't happen that day. 
So if he's trying to make a closing argument, referring to facts that aren't in evidence is not a good way to do that, right? To say, oh, there's going to be the sun's going to do this and the moon, and people are like, nope, that's not happening. So I guess you're wrong about what this prophecy means. So I don't, I don't think it could have meant that. Um, he's clearly referencing to them what they're seeing, which was the first part of that prophecy, that these folks are speaking in tongues, which then says, because that's happening, now you know that we're headed on the path to this day of the Lord. So the last interpretation, or at least let's just say the last popular interpretation of the day of the Lord is, it's that day. It's the day that the Lord judges the earth, that he comes, that he judges in righteousness, the awesome, the great day of the Lord. That's the one that I think makes the most sense. I think that's what he's referring to here, the day of the Lord. And I think we read the next verse, it becomes pretty clear. So the next verse says, and it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, so now we know the day of the Lord is coming. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Better do that because the day of the Lord is coming. So we have, now you see them prophesying or, or, or speaking in tongues rather. So you know the Holy Spirit has come. So this, this section that Joel's talking about is coming into play. That means the day of the Lord is coming. That means that you better get saved. You better get saved. Again, um, like the passage in flesh earlier where I said all flesh doesn't mean every single person. Here we have the word whoever. And in the same way, whoever is open to everyone, which would have been a strange thing for, a, for Jewish people who kind of thought that they were their own thing. There was a lot of um, prejudice then, like there is now. And the Jews certainly had a lot of prejudice towards basically everyone else because they were the chosen people, and they were the chosen people. But here in Joel, God's saying, hey, there's coming a time when whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is good news for everybody else, for everybody else. In Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, if you have your Bible with you, it says this, it says, that if you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in, on him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now the Holy Spirit is speaking through Paul to the Romans and to us, saying, listen, what you have to do is not be Jewish or a man or live in Jerusalem or make sure you make it there for all the feasts or do any of these things. He's saying, look, the Lord has won the show. And everyone, anyone who wants to come to him can be saved. It's an important thing to know. No one's out. No one's out who will call upon the Lord to be saved. The only people who are out are those who won't call upon the Lord to be saved. Let's look at uh, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Think about this closing argument thing that I've told you, the way that Peter's doing this. He says, 
It's been attested. It says it's been attested. Now, the definition of attested is to affirm to be true or genuine, specifically to authenticate by signing as a witness, to authenticate officially. So he says, a man attested. Jesus was a man attested. Attested to by who? By God. Witnesses attest to facts. Peter says, Jesus Christ was a man who was attested to you by God. That's who he's calling to the witness stand in this case. How did God testify to, to Jesus Christ? By all the signs and wonders that he did that could only have been done through the power of God. So here he's making his case. He's authenticating Jesus through the testimony of God. And what does it say? It says, which God did through him, where? In your midst. So he's saying, now look, not only is God a witness, you're witnesses. Jesus did this in front of you. Many of the people who were there likely would have seen Jesus. He was rolling around in the area just a few days before he was around doing miracles. He's saying, he did these things in your midst, in front of you. You saw this. You know it's true. You know that he was attested by God. Verse, verse 23. He says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. Now, he's continuing to build his case. He says, even though God clearly authenticated to you, attested to you, that Jesus was of God, you lawlessly put him to death. Now this is, he's, he's basically saying, you're guilty. You're guilty of something. And he's also answering a question because he says, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. By saying that, by saying, hey, God always had this plan. It was his plan from the beginning. It was his purpose from the beginning. He's, he's answering a question. When Jesus was on the cross, Matthew 27, 42a, they said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. In other words, they're asking, if he's God as he claims, why doesn't he come down off that cross and save himself? Why doesn't he do that? A legitimate question to ask. If you say, I'm all-powerful, and I nail you to a cross and you can't get off of it, you start to wonder, is he really all-powerful? And here he's answered it. He said, God foreordained this. This was God's purpose. It was planned to happen. He did it because he wanted to, because he submitted his will to do it. See, there's, a, there's the same question that those who do evil and mock God will always ask. If God is so powerful, how am I able to do this thing? How am I able to, to be so evil if God is so powerful? How many people have said the words that Satan likely said? Hey, if he's all that, how am I able to get away with what I'm doing? Let me warn you something. Do not mistake the patience and grace of God for weakness. It is not weakness. 
It is patience. It is grace. If your heart is so wicked as to say, hey, God, if you want to do something about it, do something about it. Be careful what you wish for. Because the day of the Lord is coming. It is coming. Hopefully soon. All right, verse 24. It says, Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Whom God raised up. This is the resurrection. Jesus was alive again in three days, like he said he would be, and nobody seemed to get it at the time. This is powerful evidence as Peter is continuing this closing argument because the people would have been familiar with these stories. The resurrection, remember this is Pentecost is 50 days later. The people are running around talking about Jesus being alive. There's no body in the tomb. Hundreds of people saw him alive after he had been crucified. These guys are not unaware that something's going on. So when he says this, this is something that they have to think pretty seriously about. And he says, having loosed the pains of death, Jesus rose from the dead. We get to rise from the dead. That's the deal. The pain of death, the idea of eternal nothingness or goneness or whatever you want to say, I've lost grandpa and shall never see him again. For those that will put their faith in Christ, that's not, that's nothing you have to worry about because you're going to see them again and him. That's what Jesus did when he, when he rose again. You have to understand, he had to do it for us to be able to do it. He had to do it for us to be able to do it. It's good news. That's really good news. The fact that Jesus is alive means that we never need to fear death or anything else either. All we need to do is put our faith in him. And you can do that right now, simply by asking Him to be your Lord and Savior. And you know what? He will. And if you still have questions or just need some help figuring all this out, call us at 360-885-9000. Or come see us this Sunday morning at Axe Church in Vancouver, Washington. Get directions and all the info you need at axechurchnw.org. Hope to meet you this Sunday. More great teaching with Pastor David Robinson is coming up in the next episode, so be sure and join us next time here on Contemplate. Contemplate.